Hello and welcome to the Scottish Politics Podcast. My name is David Clegg and you join me on the week the Scottish Parliament officially refused to give its consent to Theresa May's Brexit Bill. I'm delighted to be joined by two great guests today. From the SNP I have Alex Neil, a man who has seen and done it all in Scottish politics. And from the Labour Party, Jenny Mara, who represents the northeast of Scotland and is based in Dundee. Later in the show we'll be discussing First Minister's questions and prisoner voting, but I think we really have to start with the big issue of the week, which has again been Brexit. On Tuesday, uh, there was quite a a historic vote in the Scottish Parliament uh, where MSPs overwhelmingly refused to give their consent to Theresa May's Brexit bill. Uh, This has plunged us in, I guess, to a a kind of unprecedented area where we're not really sure what's going to happen. It's been widely described as a constitutional crisis. Uh, Alex Neil, I'm delighted to have you here today because uh, you are, as far as I'm aware, the only SNP MSP who has publicly said you voted for Brexit. Uh, tell me how significant you think the events of this week are. I think it's very significant. The fact that in 20 years this is the first time that Westminster so blatantly has decided to overrule the Scottish Parliament and basically ignore a decision not just taken by a majority but by a supermajority in the Parliament. And the important point here, David, is well, really two points. First of all, these 24 powers we're talking about matter. Uh, They are very important powers. They sound boring like food labelling, but they can decide whether a business succeeds or not or whether we're successfully exporting or not. Uh, And many of the other powers are equally important. So these powers matter. Secondly, under the 1998 Scotland Act, these powers are already devolved. Therefore, when they come back from Brussels, they should automatically come to this parliament. And the way in which the Tories have handled this is absolutely appalling. Jenny, uh... I guess this is an issue where Labour and the SNP largely agree. Yeah, I think what the Scottish Parliament did this week was to robustly defend the devolution settlement. And I don't think probably anyone on the Labour benches were surprised that the, the Tories didn't take part in that. You know, devolution was was nothing to do with them and they're certainly uh, not in a position or don't want to uh, defend it. I think the vote that was taken uh, this week is really important. But overall on uh, Brexit, I think, you know, the, the way the Tory, conduct, uh, Tory government is conducting this is an utter shambles. I think the, the whole thing itself is uh, catastrophic and I, I wanted to say today David that I agree with uh, what Kezia Dugdale said on your podcast last week that there probably should be a ratifying referendum on whatever deal is reached because I don't think it's you know for the Labour Party I don't think it's in any workers interest I don't think it's in anybody's interest in this country for uh, for this deal to go ahead and I think in the Labour Party future generations will look back and ask us where were you when this catastrophe was going through and what did you say? You've been very critical of the Conservative government's uh, response to the Brexit situation there, but uh, I'm sensing some frustration from Labour's official position as well because obviously a ratifying referendum is not the position of Jeremy Corbyn or indeed Richard Leonard. Do you think there's there's any realistic prospect of Labour moving towards that territory? I think there is a realistic prospect of growing uh, support, I think, cross parties for that kind of position. And we heard Willie Rennie articulate it in the 
in the chamber of the Scottish Parliament last week. I think it will come from, from all different parts. You know, we know that the Brexit issue doesn't divide neatly along party lines. You know, we know, for instance, that Alex took a different position in the SNP. We know for certain that so many SNP supporters are not in the same position as Nicola Sturgeon on this issue. And it's the same in the Labour Party. There are mixed views. It's a, it's a constitutional issue. It's a, it's a difficult and, and complicated issue, and there are many views. But I believe um, that actually the vast majority of Labour Party membership is very pro-European, is extremely worried, especially about how the Tory government is conducting itself over this. And I think there will be a growing movement for that second or ratifying referendum. Alex, do you think Nicola Sturgeon has been out of touch with SNP supporters on Brexit? I've been saying that the language needs to change. I mean, I fully accept that I'm in a minority in the SNP, although it's a fairly, very, very substantial minority, particularly amongst the SNP voters, in my view. But I think sometimes we give the impression that we are refighting the Brexit referendum rather than dealing with the situation that faces us. And the fundamental priority has to be how do we try to get into position where we can maximise the benefit to Scotland. We had a presentation at the cross-party group in Brexit uh, by Roger Mullen, former SNP MP and Michelle Thompson. And they've done some new research as independent and independent business. And it was asking the question, is Scottish business ready for Brexit? And the answer is no. So one of the priorities needs to be is to get Scottish business ready for Brexit. I disagree with Jenny on the, the second referendum. I think that's a typical EU trick. If at first you don't get the answer you want, try, try again until you do. Is that not your view on Scottish independence? <laughs> no, not at all, because the independence referendum in 2014 didn't change the status quo. Uh, where this, this referendum is different is it changed the status quo. One. And one of, the, my, one of my fears is somebody who supports independence, if and when we get into F2 and it votes for independence, people like Jenny will come along and say, well, we've got the precedent, we need into F3 to undo it. Well, I think the reality of the situation is, Alec, and you must agree with this, that the Tory government are making such a mess of this and it doesn't look like they're going to get a good deal at all. So would you not rather that the people of Scotland, who 62% of them voted in favour of staying within the EU, got a chance to vote on the deal? This is a huge constitutional moment. You know, we've been part of this union for since 1973. We can see the shambles of trying to pull it apart. Goodness only knows what a shambles it would be if we tried to pull the UK apart after 300 years of union. So I think it's perhaps right that we do give the voters a chance to say, what is this deal? Do you like it? Do you think it's going to work? and give them the chance to vote again and well, if they do like it they'll vote for it well the problem with right wing remainers if I say so like yourself is not actually to, <laughs> to vote on the deal <laughs> it is to undo the decision of the British people to come out of the European Union now of course I would be the first to agree that the Tory this is the most incompetent government of any shade we've ever had in this country Theresa May is a disaster as a Prime Minister but the way to deal with that is for Parliament to deal with that the people have spoken so let the people's decision stand. So you're just going to let Theresa May uh, strike the possibly the worst deal we're going to see, and and that will no, be, be it. it. And we'll it. it. It'll be up to Parliament to endorse it or not. Well, we'll see how it progresses. Let, let's go back to the legislative consent motion. Uh, you mentioned that these powers matter, and I think that yeah. you know, that's it's true that that is, that is definitely the case. Do you think that this is a, a constitutional crisis that has gripped the public imagination? Do you think that the 
the public are worried about it? Or do you think this is something that's still largely happening in the bubble in this building? I think it's a slow burner. I think a lot of people out there at the moment are still not just aware of just how important these powers are. And it's our job to make them aware. And in this, I think Jenny and I would agree. I mean, Jenny's a devolutionist. I fully accept that. She doesn't want independence. I want eventually Scotland to become independent. But on this, you know, the devolution settlement negotiated by Donald Dewar and others is being totally undermined by how the Tories are going about this. So if the Tories don't make some kind of concession and come back and recognise the importance of a supermajority in the Scottish Parliament uh, to reject the, the bill as it stands, then I think they would be risking a real constitutional crisis. It's a slow burner at the moment, but it's one of these things that in a few weeks or a few months' time could become the dominating issue in Scottish and British politics. Jenny, as a devolutionist and as somebody who doesn't want Scottish independence, but who also believes the Tories are making a hash of Brexit, are you are you concerned that this will boost support for independence ultimately? I don't think so. I mean, I think over the last few months, I think Nicola Sturgeon has hoped, desperately hoped, that uh, the the quite um, convenient situation she had, you know, after the Brexit vote where Britain or the UK voted for Brexit, but actually the majority of Scotland voted to remain. I think she hoped to exploit that for a second referendum. Well, we know she did because she stood up not long after and said she wanted a second independence referendum. There doesn't seem to be um, public support for that. I think the polls have told us that the, the country certainly doesn't want to go through that again. I don't want to go through that again. I found it uh, very divisive in our communities amongst family and friends friends and I don't think we want to go back there. So I hope, the second I Brexit hope, referendum would be even more divisive. Well, we made, a deci- made a decision on the Scottish referendum. We are now in a process with the Brexit negotiation where it wouldn't be a second referendum. It would be what the deal is. And I would... <laughs> Uh, and I, you I must think, think that your head's is absolutely up the back. well. You must think your head's well, buttoned up the Alex, back. Alex, you must think the head's buttoned up the back of so many people in Scotland <laughs> who would actually like to see, to get another chance I, to vote on believe, this deal when they see the shambles that Theresa May I is making of this. I don't believe there's an appetite out there at the moment for a referendum and anything. Actually, I mean, even even when the polls are showing forty five percent support for independence, when you then ask independent supporters included, would do you want another independence referendum immediately? They say only twenty seven percent say that. Why do you think that is? Well, I think we're in a state of flux, as Jenny rightly says, we are in a state of flux. We still don't know the shape of the Brexit deal, if there's going to be one. I think there will be, but we still don't know. And I think the feeling out there at the moment is we've got enough uncertainty to deal with at the moment. Let's not pile any more uncertainty onto it. And even independent supporters, 45% of the people still support independence, but a lot of them are saying, but now's not just quite right. This is not the time. Let's see what Brexit brings before we decide the timing because the deal whatever the deal is will raise some questions about how we define independence in a post-Brexit world you cannot do that until you've seen the consequences and the shape of the final deal Jenny what what do you think happens next as regards to the LCM it it seems like the Tories are going to push on uh, although exactly what's going to happen with this Brexit bill is uh, pretty unclear given the manoeuvrings at Westminster. Do you think there's a there's a, a significant problem if if the if it just if it just pushes on and the vote on Tuesday is ignored? 
Yes, I, I think there is. I mean, the Scottish the Scottish Parliament spoke loudly and clearly on Tuesday, so I think it would be very foolish of uh, Theresa May to to ignore that. You know, we're in uncharted waters here. It's unprecedented times, um, but I think Theresa May will have to. Um, if she, if she, as she should, um, and David Cameron didn't have the integrity of the UK um, in her heart and as a priority, then she should very well listen to what the Scottish Parliament said on Tuesday. I think there's a real danger, actually, not just in this issue, but when the Brexit bill comes back to the House of Commons, which is due to do so fairly soon, she's now got a problem with all these laws amendments because the arithmetic of the House of Commons means some of these amendments will probably stand, but the crucial amendments on things like the single market and the customs union, which deeply divide the Tory cabinet, are the key uh, votes. Now, in my view, to get some of this, these amendments reversed, the House of Lords amendments reversed, she might need to make some of these votes a vote of confidence in order to get enough Tory MPs to vote on her side. Because even with the DUP, the arithmetic is still pretty evenly balanced. And the danger for her there is a real danger. If you make it a vote of confidence and you're defeated, it's an election. So I think there's an outside chance, I wouldn't put it any higher than that at the moment, but I think there's a real outside chance that we will uh, have an election that nobody at the moment wants, but just this force of circumstances. And in that situation, I think the Tories going into an early election in Scotland, having overruled a super majority in the Scottish Parliament, will prove very difficult for them indeed. Do you think there's a prospect of a general election this year, Jenny? I think it's a very outside chance. I mean, is Theresa May going to make the same mistake that she did, you know, last June and call us, find herself in a general election situation? You know, if there's one thing we know about the Conservative Party, they hang on to power by their very fingernails. And I would doubt that there'd be anyone around Theresa May would allow her to get into that situation. They'll, they'll hold on um, as long as they can. It, in terms of what would happen in an election, you know, it wouldn't just be, I think, predicated the result on on what's going on now, because you can see um, what's going on in our schools and with with cuts all over the country. Um, you know, I think people will vote just as much on those issues as as on the issues we've just been talking about. So, yeah, nobody really knows what could happen then either. Speaking of voting, I want to move on. We could we could we could speak about Brexit all day, but we probably shouldn't do that. Um, <laughs> Prisoner voting is an issue that's been in a lot of the papers this week. Uh, the Equalities Committee here published a report on Monday suggesting that prisoners should be given the franchise. Uh, it was discussed at First Minister's questions today. Um, and I think politicians, some, certainly Nicola Sturgeon, I thought, seemed quite reluctant to give too much away mm. today about what her views in it are. Because polling shows as an idea it's pretty unpopular. Uh, do, do you support it, Jenny? So I actually agree with what the First Minister outlined today. I think there is a case for some prisoners to vote, um, but not a case for prisoners who have committed heinous crimes in our society, uh, like rapists, murderers. I don't think they should get the vote at all. And I think a sensible way uh, to split it would be along the lines of those who are tried in the High Court under solemn procedure um, are not entitled to the franchise. Those tried in the Sheriff Court, um, which has a, a shorter sentencing power of, of five years, and we find that a lot of people that go to uh, trial in the Sheriff Court are um, 
I'm not saying all, but certainly a lot are from very deprived backgrounds. Um, they are they've gone through the care system. Um, they found themselves in then a pattern of crime. I think we have a responsibility as a society to an element of restorative justice and rehabilitation for people tried under um, that summary procedure, that lower level procedure in uh, the sheriff court. And I would like to see that as part of their re rehabilitation. So in summary, I think we should use it. Um, the vote as part of rehabilitation um, for people who have cr committed perhaps lesser crime but for those who have committed rape, murder and those crimes tried in the High Court I think they have forfeited the right to um, participate uh, in society and I think it's right that they don't have the vote. Now that split would actually comply with I believe what the uh, European Court on Human Rights has said and I got the impression today from what the First Minister said that that's the kind of road she's going down. Do you agree Alec? I agree totally with what the First Minister said and basically with what Jenny is saying as well. Um, I think the First Minister really made two points and I agree with her on both. First of all, it's not clear that in order to satisfy the European Convention on Human Rights that we need to give every prisoner a vote. I think that's far from clear uh, and that needs to be properly investigated and tested. And secondly, I would be very much against giving these, all these prisoners a vote, given as Mr Muir, uh, the father of a victim of murder, uh, the, the point he made that uh, his son has been denied the right to live as a result of being murdered. So why should the person yeah. who murdered him be entitled to vote? Yeah. The, the polling on this is very clear, that the public are overwhelmingly yeah. against the idea. Yes. Uh, so. There were, Kenny McCaskill, I believe, wrote a, wrote a column in the Herald yeah. uh, a number of months ago where he suggested that this this issue had been uh, kind of delayed or ducked by yeah. the SNP government prior to the independence referendum. You were you were in government at that time. Is yeah. it, was, was there discussions about that? Can you tell us? Hey, nothing. I mean, it wasn't a big issue for us because everybody recognised that it was something that was not of immediate priority. Obviously, with the pending referendum at that time and independence and the aftermath of independence, this was not top of the entry, quite frankly. And I don't think people would have appreciated there was no pressure from any of the other parties to make it a top entry item. Uh, I know opinions are divided. Some people take a very religious view of the European Convention on Human Rights uh, and uh, ad adopt the same position as Kenny, which is a perfectly legitimate position, but it's one that I fundamentally disagree with. I think when you've denied someone else the right to live, you've denied yourself the right to vote. Jenny, do you th you've outlined what your, what your preferred position would be if there is change. Do you think that there's an impetus to change, or is it just coming from the, from the European Court? Um, clearly, there's an impetus from the committee in this parliament to change and obviously from the court as well. I believe we are a number of years behind some other European countries on this. So I think probably on balance the parliament will see that as impetus, sorry, as impetus to, to get on with this and to look at it. Um, I think it's an important issue. I think it's a sensitive issue. Um, and I wonder how it will all progress in the chamber. There are clearly a host of different views, yes. not just within parties, but across the chamber. Absolutely. But I think it will be an important debate to have. I, I actually think at the end of the day, um, this is one of those issues where a free vote would be appropriate uh, because it's not a party political issue per se. And I think actually 
probably there's a lot of cross-party support for the First Minister's position, but there is what I think is probably a minority view in the Parliament, which is the Kenny McCaskill view. And I think the right way to deal with matters like this is actually a free vote. I don't see why we need party whips applied to this. I suppose one of the benefits of the current situation is that we're, uh, for the first time in a few years, we don't have any pending vote coming exactly. up particularly quickly. So it is a time when there could maybe be some rational deliberation over that, about it yeah, over a period and, of months. And, and I think the point the First Minister made about a mature, grown-up discussion, and let's look at all the options here. I think the first thing is to get absolute clarification of what our legal requirements are. And I don't think at the moment that's entirely clear. Mm-hmm. So that's the starting point. And then within that, look at what the various options are. But I, as I say, very personally, would be very much against voting for a murderer, for example, or a rapist uh, to get the vote. Let's move on to discuss uh, the meat of First Minister's questions today. Uh, Ruth Davidson went on education. It was a a question about the availability of exam topics. But I think overall the the, the discussion was mostly dominated by health issues once again, and particularly issues about mental health which Richard Leonard and Willie Rennie both raised. Uh, I have Alex Neal, a former health secretary, with me today, and also uh, Jenny Mara, uh, based in Dundee, uh, where many of the mental health issues have been, have been raised uh, in the last few weeks. Alex, do you think the criticism of the Scottish government uh, on this issue has been unwarranted, or do you think it is an area where uh, they've maybe been a bit remiss? I think it's a top priority area, but it's one of these areas where it's very difficult to get a quick fix. Uh, Now, having said that, obviously Jenny will come back and say, well, you've been in for 10 years. But if actually, if you look at the position 10 years ago with the position today, it is substantially improved. I mean, the First Minister gave some of the figures. Uh, We employ more than twice as many psychologists as we did 10 years ago. I don't think we should try and make mental health a party issue. Uh, I think it's that the people out there who suffer from mental health problems would want us to be all much more mature than trying to turn it into a political football. I think we would all agree that although substantial progress has been made, we're nowhere near where we need to be to provide the quality and level of service that people are entitled to with mental health services. I agree with Jenny, for example, on the point she made about the need for a crisis centre in Dundee. Uh, and I think that's the kind of area that should be a priority. And if we need to find more money to do it, we need to find more money to do it. And I think we're all signed up to the principle that we need to get mental health services uh, to the same level and the equality of esteem between mental health and physical health so that one isn't seen as the poor relation of the other, which traditionally mental health has been. Jenny, we both live in Dundee and this has been an issue for quite a while in the city. Uh, There's obviously been the case of David Ramsey, which has uh, captured the headlines in recent weeks. Just how how deep a problem do you think it is? It's a a huge problem. Mm. And I think it's it's an escalating problem. And I don't say that um, for effect. I say it because that's what what I see and hear every day. at home. One of the most disturbing things that was raised at FMQs today were, were, were the number of children who are being turned away from mental health services. Now, what happens there is a parent or carer takes their child to the GP. The GP then refers them on to mental health services. In um, Dundee, in the NHS Tayside, side, 567 children have been turned away from CAMS, that's the Children's Mental Health Services, and the GPs have been told, no, either they don't need this treatment or we don't have capacity to treat them. 
I think that is a huge issue. Now, Alex said we don't want to turn this into party politics. I tend to agree with that, but I do think that politics is about priorities. And when we have children exhibiting and saying they have problems and their parents seeing that and they're not able to get that, even if it's just a simple counselling session that might stem a bigger problem in the future, educational psychologists, there aren't as many of them in schools these days, it's more difficult to train in them. There's a whole host of issues um, here. Um, So I think, especially for children, if we can get in on this at an earlier level and try and help children through this, um, then I, I think that should be a priority for the government. And I think Richard Leonard was right to press the First Minister on that today in Mental Health Awareness Week. Alex, as a former Health Secretary, how Shona, Shona Robeson, the, um, uh, the current Health Secretary, has, has had a lot of criticism in recent weeks. Yeah. Do you think that that's been unfair, or do you think there's been legitimate issues raised, or, or, or how do you think her position is at the moment? Well, I think there's legitimate issues being raised, but you can't blame Shona because the health service operates in a very devolved way. But there's got to way. be accountability. And, and there's obviously got to be accountability in the parliament that holds every health minister, including myself at the time, as well as Shona and before that Nicola, to account. And that's quite right that that should happen. But I do think that we need a very substantial reform programme. There's a lot of things happening in terms of change within the health service. I think the problem is we need to up the pace and scale of the change because I don't believe the level of change and the scale of change and the pace of change is keeping p- keeping up with the level of demand. So what would you like to see? Well, a whole host of things. I think the first thing is the, a lot of the problems arise because of the staffing issues. And if you take, for example, nursing, uh, if, if, you're a, if you're an agency nurse, you, end, you earn nearly twice the daily rate of a, staff, a, a, a nurse who's on the staff. Sometimes That's entirely wrong. That means you're building into the system an incentive for people who work for the health service to leave the health service and go into agency nursing. So you get into a vicious cycle. So the only way you're going to solve that is to stop paying agency nurses significantly more than the people who are in the health service get, but also to simultaneously to substantially increase the wages of nurses employed by the health service. So why didn't you do that as health secretary, Mr. I did, actually. I I actually, when uh, down south, they were freezing nurses' wages. I increased them every single year. Uh I mean, Alex saying, you know, we can't blame Shona, we can't... But there's got to be a level of government accountability on this. I mean, NHS Tayside, I'm sure, aren't in a position that they don't want to treat 567 children. They don't have the staff or capacity to treat these 567 children. And whose fault is that? You know, you can say you don't want to play a blame game, but there's got to be accountability. This is public-funded services, and they've got and ministers have got to be accountable for it. So where is the money, and where are the staff to treat these children who desperately need to see someone? Can, can I just make this point? Um, and, and I'm not making this as a part political point but it's a fact of life all the parties in the Scottish Parliament and all the parties at Westminster need to grasp if you look at the UK health service we spend roughly 9% of GDP on health France spends over 10% Germany spends 11% of GDP on health now if we were spending the same as France and Germany we would have an extra 1.5 to 2 billion pounds a year in the Scottish health service and I think, really, if we want the health service that we all demand, quite rightly, we've got to be willing to put our hands in our pockets but as individual citizens, voted citizens against our... and, pay, and pay for it. So you would advocate a, a tax rise for that? I, I, what I, I think we should repeat, what Gordon Brown, I think, did very cleverly, 
where he increased the national insurance contributions for people who are high high earners uh, by 2%, I think it was from memory, and that funded the massive expansion in health spending during the Blair-Brown years. I think we're at the stage now we need to put another 2% onto these people to fund the expansion we need to get us up to the same level as Germany and France. And I think if you did that, most people would accept that as both fair and the right thing to do. We cannot get to the level of quality of health that we need and want without substantial additional yearly investment. Jenny? The last budget process in the Scottish Parliament, Labour put forward proposals to raise more revenue, but Nicola Sturgeon wasn't prepared to ask people to do it. So, you know, again, politics is about choices, it's about priorities. If she wants a better funded health service, if she wants a better funded education service, then she has got to start to reorder her priorities or ask people to pay more. It's as simple as that. But like Gordon, and Gordon absolutely took the decision that increasing income tax wasn't the way to do it. It was increasing national insurance contributions and we don't have control over national insurance contributions. That's where the scope is for a very substantial money raiser in a way that doesn't dis- disincentivise people to work. The Scottish Parliament's now responsible for raising over half its revenue, so there are ways and means, and the First Minister's spent her political life arguing for those powers, so she should but, well, I would, she I, should use them and I get would, on with it. I would agree with the expanding the revenue, but not necessarily through further increases in income tax. I think we need to look at some kind of short-term measures in taxing land, for example, development land, uh, it takes much longer if you're going to tax all land, like a land value tax, as proposed in your budget last year, estimated to raise money this year that was physically impossible to do without primary legislation that would have taken at least a year to get through. Jenny? Well, it was pretty clear. The last budget, it was pretty clear. She's struggling. She's no, struggling. It, was, it was pretty clear. The Labour Party said we should raise more revenue for public services. Nicola Sturgeon wasn't prepared to ask people to to do it. And do, do that's, th- her, that's her decision. Alec, do you think that the public services, the t- 10 or 11 years in government, that there is starting to be a bit of a, a problem for the SNP? That Nick, the, the last election last year, obviously there was a lot of MPs lost. That, that, that there's, there's starting to be a dip in popularity? I think there would be if we don't take the action that's needed to get uh, our services into even better shape. I think people recognise what we've done in the last 10 years, but in politics, particularly in government, you're only as good as your last gig. So we've got to keep up the pace and scale of reform and put the additional resources in. We are putting substantial additional resources into the health service. I mean, when I was the health secretary, my budget was under 12 billion. Now it's well over 13 billion. So we are putting additional money in, but we are limited by uh, the limitations on our tax raising powers and the limitations of the reliance on the block grant from London. Finally then, Jenny, Richard Leonard raised this issue about course view in Dundee. Uh, He seemed to affect some change there with the public. There is an inquiry being carried out by the health board. Are you happy with where where we are with that situation now, or do you think there's still further to go, that more needs done? Well, I was glad that when we debated this in Parliament last week that the government conceded um, Richard's point that actually there would be a proper inquiry um, under statute, under law, if that review that the Health Board have come up with doesn't answer the questions that we want answered. Um, 
you know, Alex was saying we can't make this party political, but there, there's got to be a lever to push for these things. I called for an inquiry into Carsview two years ago. That fell on deaf ears for the health secretary and Tayside Health Board. And it took um, things building up there to, to, to really come to this crisis point and to look into it. I think the priority will be to make sure the chair is independent um, and to make sure it is a proper process that answers questions and will involve families and their voices as well. And I will hope that it will specifically um, look at those vulnerable pe people who can't get the out-of-hours service that I outlined today at First Minister's Questions. Okay, well that's all we've got time for today, I think. I'd like to thank my guests, Alec Mule and Jenny Mara, for taking the time to come and talk to us. Pleasure. And we'll be back next week. See you then. Cheers. Cheers.